So have you ever gotten to the edge of a cliff? Or have you, have you, have you, have you gotten to where you're looking at, at the ledge and uh, it's a long drop? Some people uh, are okay with getting right up to the, to the, to the edge. Some people have no problems uh, getting, getting right there. I remember I went to the Grand Canyon when I was in college, and I had a friend named Johnny, and Johnny was tipping his feet right over the edge of the Grand Canyon. And I thought, that guy probably will not live very long. Sadly, he did pass away in a skydiving accident not too long after that. I have a fear of heights a little bit. I'm willing to do uh, things, but, but getting too close to the ledge, I don't like. And so if you look at that picture right there, that's supposed to be one of the top views in the world. I went, up, went down to Brazil to visit one of our missionaries at the time. This was about 10 years ago. And he took me to this place. Um, I don't know the name of it. It's in Portuguese. But you go and you're overlooking this beautiful scenery and one of the things they do at this place is they have these paragliders that you just run off the cliff and you go and you enjoy this beautiful view of brazil my friend says do you want to do this and i looked at it and i was like no i don't want to do that and then he says well it's 150 dollars," and so that was a good excuse i'm not doing it no nah, i don't have 150 dollars to do that I'd rather back up to the mountain eh, or the mountain side than to get too close to the edge. When I've climbed a mountain on wilderness trek, one of the hard things to do is sometimes when you get to the, uh, the, 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 the final peak, some mountains have little ridges that you have to go across. And I always like to be right up against the side of the mountain, but there's sometimes where you have to go to where if you go too far to the left, you tumble down and meet your maker, you go too far to the right, you'll find the same demise, and so you have to go over this middle, treacherous, hard ridge. And sometimes in life, that's what we're called to do. We're called to be in the middle, not go too far to the left or too far to the right, but we often find comfort in the extremes of the right and the left. We see that in our politics, right? The ones that get the most, uh, that, that, that you hear the most from, they're, they're on the far extremes, the right or the left. And that goes into religion too. You, 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 can, you feel comfortable going pretty far to the right or the left. And in some situations, we're not called to compromise. There's some things that we can't compromise on. There's certain truths in this life that we have to stay loyal to and we have to pick this side. But there's other places where we have to realize going too far to the right or the left is not what God wants from us and it's not how God has called us to live. Last week, if you were here, uh, you might remember we talked about the Jerusalem Council where Paul takes, Tim, or, uh, takes Titus down to Jerusalem to say whether or not a good 
young follower like Titus that has no background in Judaism, can he be saved without following the laws of Moses? And Peter stands up and he tells them, why do you test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither, neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as we are. And this is where we see this concept of grace. It's grace that saves us. It's not the law that saves us. It's not the law of Moses that saves us. It is grace. And Paul will teach that same thing. He'll teach that to the Ephesian church. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, it says, For it is by grace you've been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's a gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. Paul makes sure that we know it's grace that we're saved. Robert just led a song. He paid a debt we could not pay. Oh, the depths and riches of such wonderful love flowing boundless and full and free. This is something that only God could give us. There's nothing we can do to earn this grace. But when we hear things like that, when we hear that there is a debt that we can't pay, a logical thinker, kind of like me, or, or if, you, if you grew up in a tradition like, like I did, it's, that's hard to take ourself out of the equation of accepting this free gift of grace. So one of the things that uh, I grew up reading, one of the things that I use as I, as I, as I teach the gospel, is something that we call the five steps of salvation. If you grew up in the church, you probably have seen this, right? The five steps of salvation. You, you hear, you believe, you repent, you confess, you're baptized. And then sometimes in that five steps, people say, well, you actually need six steps. You need to be faithful to the end, faithful unto death to receive salvation. These are good steps. These are biblical steps. These are logical steps. We go up there and that's how we achieve our salvation. It's rooted in Scripture. It's clear. It's concise. And it also leaves something out. I did a little research this week on churches that put these five steps of salvation on their website. And they don't just put these steps. They, they have long explanations for each step. And I searched for one word. Grace. Out of the five churches, I, I picked them randomly, just the first five churches I saw. In all of those churches that put this on their website, one church talked about Grace. And the only thing they said about grace is anytime it's in Scripture, it's taken out of context. 
I believe that these are important things that we do. These are logical. These make sense. But how sad is it that we're taking out something so, in, so, so embedded in our faith, something that, that, that's so important to our faith, we just leave grace out. We sing songs, heaven came down and glory filled my soul, but we don't want heaven to come down. We need to take the steps up. And I don't think that's what God is showing us. When Jesus said, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, well, they, they will inherit the kingdom of God. We've got to realize that we can't do it on our own. So why do we get nervous when we talk about grace? Because on the flip side, there's people of other traditions that teach things like, uh, one of the things that they, they, they call it the five points of Calvinism. And this is about predestination. And, and, and one of the, the hardest things that I, I read this, I hear what they're saying is that At one point, before the world was created, Jesus selected everyone that was going to be saved, or God selected everyone was, that was going to be saved. There's nothing that you could do to earn your salvation. It's irresistible grace. Either he picked you and you get to be saved, and if he didn't pick you, you don't get it, and that was the grace on the people that he selected. Well, I don't believe in that. I don't think that matches with what God says about for God so loved the world that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This is the grace that he offers to the entire world. So I look at the far right and I look at the far left and I think it's got to be somewhere in the middle and how does it work? To have grace and to have deeds. I believe there's nothing we can do to earn our salvation. But I also believe with grace comes responsibility on our part. Right after Titus and Paul were talking to the Jerusalem council, Peter makes this incredible statement on grace. And then James, who is uh, one of the, he's the brother of Jesus. He's a great leader in the church. He steps up and he says something. In Acts chapter 15, verse 19, he says, It's my judgment, therefore, that she we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. What James is doing in, in this instance is he is showing that grace is given to all that want to believe, all that want to give their lives to Christ. But there's responsibilities with that grace. And these four things that he lists some of them make sense and some of them might sound a little strange to us 
Well, where is James getting this? Well, James is going back to the Levitical laws, and one of the things that he's looking at is he's, he's, finding, he's finding scriptures that talk about the foreigners that lived among the Israelites at the time, that lived among God's people, and so these are some of the laws that God gave to the foreigners that lived among God's people. They didn't follow the full law, but there were things that they had to follow. There were responsibilities of being God's people and living with God's people. So James doesn't discount grace, but James is saying there is responsibility to the grace that we've been given. What we have been given, we have to have some sort of reflection of a changed heart. There has to be some sort of reflection of this grace that goes out to the world. And Paul will say these same things. Paul will make sure that people understand that while we have grace, we have responsibility. In Romans chapter 6, verse 1, it says, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? If our lives don't change after we've been baptized into Christ, if we don't see anything in our heart that has changed, if we go on living the exact same way, did we truly die to ourselves? Did we truly give our life to Christ? Did we truly make that exchange? And that's what Paul's saying is, is grace is incredible, but there is some sort of responsibility. We don't just continue to sin. We don't just continue to live this type of life so that grace can give, increase, so we can have more and more and more grace. He's saying we need some responsibility. We've got to do something about what's happened to our life. And that's why Paul writes all these letters to the churches. He continues writing these le letters to the churches to try to show them how to live a life, a new life, under Jesus Christ. Once we've been given this grace, once we have been baptized, we've, we've died to that old way of life, we're living a new life, and so we should look like we're living this new life. From this council... Paul and Timothy and Titus, they all go and they start Paul's second missionary journey. And they go several places and, and eventually Paul ends up stopping and, and staying for two years with a church in Corinth. And in this church in Corinth, he's teaching these new Christians how to live this different life, how to live a life of grace how their hearts should be changed, how their actions should be changed, how they should have good deeds and good works, and how they should abstain from other types of things in their life that go against the goodness of God. And after two years, Paul goes on and he, he heads over to Ephesus, another thriving city, and he wants to teach them. But he leaves Timothy to remain with the Corinthian church. And Timothy gives him, after a little while, some tough news. 
that other people are coming into the church and other people are telling them that Paul is uh, not really an apostle, that Paul has no right to be teaching them how to live their lives and, 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 and they start following other ways. Instead of living in this life that go, of grace that God has given them, they're starting to take advantage of that and live however they want to live. And so Paul writes a letter back to him. And this letter that he writes to him, it's a pretty severe letter. And we don't have access to this letter, but it's talked about in 2 Corinthians. And this letter that he wrote to him, at first it made him mad. And Paul did something. He took Titus that was with him and he asked Titus, go and help this Corinthian church. See what it's like to live within the grace of Jesus Christ. So Titus was this example of, of grace in front of the, the, the Jerusalem council, but now Paul has taken Titus and he's also showing him, you need to find out how to repent, how to turn back to the grace of Christ. And so Titus plays these two roles, this role in the middle showing all about grace, and he also shows a life of repentance, a life of responsibility. Paul's not doing this to the Corinthian church to show that he's better than them. He wants the Corinthian church to understand what a life of grace looks like. And so he writes to them in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4. For I wrote to you out of great distress and anguish of my heart. This is the letter we don't have access to. And with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know of the depth of my love for you. Paul writes this letter trying to get them to turn back to Christ, trying to get them to understand the grace that God offers them, trying to get them to repent from their sins and to experience that love that Jesus Christ has for us, to live responsibly within that grace. And he hadn't heard back. It hurts his heart. He loves these people. He wants them to do what's best for their lives. He wants them to do what's best for the church. And he's trying to go about doing his ministry, and it, it's hurting his heart so badly that people don't fully understand the grace of God, that people are living this life without responsibility. And he can't even do the work of, uh, of the church. In verse 12, of 2 Corinthians 2, it says, Now I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me. I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my bro brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. Paul had an open door, but he's, he's hurting because the church is not following what they're called to do. They're not living out what God has called them to do, to go and do good works, to be a light into this world. And he was hoping to meet Titus with good news, and Titus never came to Troas at that time. 
All he wanted was for this church to fully understand how to live in the grace of Jesus Christ. But then Titus meets up with him. He's in Macedonia, which is northern Greece. And Titus meets up with him, and he has good news for him. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5, it says, For when we came to Macedonia, we had no rest. We were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also the comfort that you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Titus shows up to Paul, and Titus has good news that the people are living inside the grace of God. They're, they're experiencing the riches and depth of his wonderful love. And when they experience that, they're, they're spreading that out with, with, with everyone around and they realize how much Paul loves them. But sometimes, experiencing the riches and depth of wonderful love, what do we do? We've got to change what's happening in our hearts. And that's what it says in verse 8. It says, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it at a time, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I'm happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led to your repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended. And so we're not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. You see that? Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation. This grace and deeds, we can't earn our, our way to heaven, but they go hand in hand. There's somewhere in this, in this hard middle where we, we navigate our love of our Father that gave us Jesus Christ, that paid the debt that we could never pay. And then our responsibility to that love, the reflection of our hearts to all people, that we're living as people of grace, people that have been given something that we didn't earn, but we want to show the world. My parents have uh, some friends that are fairly well-to-do. And when I got married, they were wanting to know what I wanted as a wedding gift. And I knew this wedding gift was going to be a pretty significant wedding gift. I knew this because a couple years before I got married, my sister got married, and my sister was given two horses. I don't want horses. Every time I've been on a horse, I've looked foolish, so I wanted, that's the one thing I told my parents. I said, I, I don't want horses. But my sister grew up. 
She didn't like dolls. She liked horses. And her whole room was filled with horses. And, and, and every time we went on a vacation, we had to go ride a horse. Worst part of vacation. But horses gave my sister joy. And what greater gift than to grant her two horses for her wedding? It was more joy than she could ever have right there. She got married and she got horses and she's living her dream. I didn't have anything big like that and so they just gave us about $2,000 worth of gift cards. Gift cards to Kroger and Target and the movies and Outback Steakhouse and all sorts of things. This was a free gift to us just because they were kind to their friend's children. In a year or so, my gift cards were gone. But to this day, over 20 years later, my sister still has these horses. They're one horse. One still around. Grace is free. The grace of Jesus Christ is free, but that does not mean it's cheap. My sister was given this free gift, but that gift came with responsibility, right? If she wants that gift to, to remain, she, 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 she has to go and feed the horses. And it, costs my, it, 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 it seems like it costs her, but it's a free gift. It's not cheap. The grace of God, I believe, has responsibilities within us. We've got something to do when we've been given such an incredible gift. Our hearts have to reflect that in some way. That's why when Paul writes to the Ephesian church, he says, it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's a free gift of God, not by works so that anyone can boast. But then what else does he say? For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works for which God prepared in advance for us to do. These two things go hand in hand. We don't do good works so we can earn our salvation. We do good works because of our salvation. And if we're not doing this good works, did we receive this grace? Did our hearts change? I don't think we have to sit on pins and needles wondering if we have salvation, but I do think what we should be looking at what's happened in our life and is our life reflecting what's been given to us. The grace of Jesus Christ is available for you today. You can have it. It's free to anyone. Or you can turn it down. One of the ways that we see that we accept this free gift of grace is we're baptized into Him. We, we have our old sins washed away. And we're raised with Him. We're raised with forgiveness. We're not raised to where, where we walk this, this, this fine line on pins and needles. Well, if we mess up today, we're going to lose our salvation forever. No, we've been given grace. But we walk this line knowing that we need to reflect 
that grace in our hearts through our good works, through our good deeds, through our obedience to God's command. And when we mess up, we all do. We need to have a heart that wants to turn back to Him. And that's a long ridge that we walk. And it's tough sometimes. But there's no greater joy than we can have than to be with our Father in heaven. If you want that grace and be baptized today, you can have that. If you are ready to turn back to Him, maybe you're struggling, His grace is ready for you to come back. Whatever you need, please come while we stand and sing.